The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. It's the first episode of the year, so as ever, we're looking ahead at the next 12 months. We discuss what might be in store for the art market and highlight the big museum openings, biennales and exhibitions of 2023. Annie Shaw, the acting art market editor at the Art Newspaper, looks into her crystal ball and tries to predict the fortunes of the market this year. And then Jane Morris, one of our editors at large, Jose De Silva, our exhibitions editor, and I select the museum projects, biennales and exhibitions that we're most looking forward to in 2023. All of the shows we discuss are in the art newspaper's magazine, The Year Ahead 2023, an authoritative guide to the world's must-see art exhibitions and museum openings. You can order your copy at theartnewspaper.com. The URL is bit.ly slash yearahead2023. That's bit.ly slash yearahead 2023. And a reminder to subscribe to this podcast and to our sister podcast, A Brush With, which returns in February, wherever you're listening. Do also leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, the art market ended 2022 with mixed fortunes, with billion-dollar auction sales amid wider concerns of a downturn. So what now? I asked Annie Shaw, our acting art market editor, what we might expect over the next 12 months and beyond. Annie, before we get to sort of actual predictions, there's been this humdinger of a new story that's actually emerged right at the start of the year that actually will act as something of a kind of grounding for this discussion, I think. So tell us about what's going on with the Masterpiece Fair and MCH, which is a group that owns Art Basel. Yes, I mean, you know, any hopes for a happy new year were were dashed in London last week with the announcement the Masterpiece has has been cancelled, as you say, by Art Basel's parent company, MCH Group. And this is very much a cancellation. It's not a postponement. Masterpiece has been very clear about this. You know, the fair may survive in a completely different format, but it's, it's very much over for the current event. In a statement, MCH said that escalating costs and a decline in the number of international exhibitors mean that the event is not commercially viable this year. And I spoke to Masterpiece's chief executive, Lucy Kitchener, early this week, and she told me that it was a perfect storm of the pandemic spiralling exhibiting costs and she mentioned that uh, costs have spiked more than 30 percent since 2019 and they just couldn't pass those costs on to dealers it would have been prohibitive for dealers to take part and then the dreaded brexit that had contributed to the decision to pull the event which had already seen you know this quite a big drop off in exhibitors from europe last year and and that caused them significant losses in revenue so one of the curious things about this is MCH acquired a controlling stake in 2017, which gave them sort of basically two thirds of Masterpiece. They then bought it outright, it sounds like, last year. So why would they then cancel the fair after gaining full ownership? I I can't compute that. I mean, it's a good question. And and honestly, I don't think anyone saw this coming um, until they looked at the projected figures, which were scrutinised quite recently. And then they made... This decision, I think it's simply a business decision. You've got to remember that the the pandemic was pretty tough for MCH. They've undergone restructuring and regrouping. And and I think they survived largely thanks to this huge cash injection from James Murdoch. He invested 46 million euros in August 2020. 
So, you know, the pot isn't bottomless for MCH. They have to make smart business decisions. And, and this was sadly one of them, a very tough decision. They also have a track record in picking up and dropping regional fares. MCH sold its 25% stake in Art Dusseldorf after just two years in 2019. And they also yo-yoed when it came to Art SG Singapore, which is currently going on in Singapore. As we speak, they pulled their investment, MCH, in November 2018. And three years later, reinvested, albeit a minority stake, 15%. But, but they have some form here in being nimble with their, with their regional portfolio affairs. Right. Can we talk about Masterpiece a bit? Because one of the things I find curious about Masterpiece, I was actually involved in judging the best stand of the year at Masterpiece a few years ago. And one of the things, having not really known the fair up to that point, actually, was I didn't really know what it was for. And I wonder if that was is part of it. Because on the one hand, there's kind of luxury goods and even cars and things like that. And then you come across a stand which you might see at like Pad London, which has a very defined identity as a kind of, you know, modernist and, and sort of high level kind of um, art and design. So to me, it seemed like Masterpiece may have been a tough sell anyway. I mean, it's it's an interesting one. It's it's a very eclectic fair. You know, it was largely aimed at older works of art. So you had old masters, antiques. I mean, as you say, it's a lot of design. In more recent editions, it included more contemporary presentations. But, you know, it launched its first edition in 2010. You know, it was typically held during June and July in Chelsea, which it was sort of an anchor for that summer season in London. You know, it was when the very wealthy would come to London, they would go to Royal Ascot, they would go to Wimbledon and the Chelsea Flower Show. Um, and Masterpiece was another sort of, you know, notch on the bedpost, so to speak. <laughs> but, I mean, but the other thing to note about that summer season, though, and, and, and this is a serious point, is that June used to be a big season for the post-war and contemporary auctions in London. And since Brexit, that has very much been in flux. I mean, you might remember that Christie's famously cancelled and then brought back its June sale albeit in a slightly watered-down version. So this is really creating a big question mark over the summer season in London and, and, and indeed London's crown in terms of an art market centre. Now, you've mentioned Brexit there and earlier on as well. I think one of the interesting things is, of course, politicians in Britain are not wanting to talk about Brexit at the moment. The government doesn't want to talk about it because it's looking pretty disastrous. The opposition doesn't want to talk about it because it doesn't want to go back to the ground of Brexit to fight the next election on. But the art world really wants to talk about Brexit because it seems to me that all... All those sort of concerns about Brexit that were expressed many years ago are now coming home to roost. I mean, that's it exactly. And I think Lucy Kitchener, you know, of Masterpiece said the same to me, that she feels that the fallout from Brexit is only now truly beginning to be felt. You know, the pandemic has masked the true impact and indeed our ability to address it. And I've been speaking to dealers in the aftermath of the Masterpiece announcement, and it has very much galvanised them to take action in London again. Um, you know, I think conversations have been going on over many years. I mean, indeed, since the referendum to leave the EU in, in 2016, um, I know the British Art Market Federation has been lobbying the government to introduce zero import VAT, for instance. And I think these conversations are just getting louder now this week. You know, some of the dealer associations, as I mentioned, BAMF, the British Art Market Federation, and SLAD, which is the Society of London Art Dealers, they are now, they feel it's time to redouble their efforts. And I think there will be more noise in the coming weeks. And indeed, next week, there's a report by a House of Lords committee, which is being published on the future of the creative industries in the UK, which has been written in response to concerns that the UK is losing its status internationally. And among other things, I think the report will look at challenges around tax policies, which could indeed include measures concerning import VAT, and as I mentioned, the lobbying for that to be reduced to zero. 
Let's talk about fairs more widely. There are always sort of fairs which are seen as kind of the key moments in the year in, in terms of detecting the health of the market. At the end of last year, we had conversations. You had a conversation with Amy at Art Basel Miami Beach, for instance, and we had a conversation at Freeze. And there were sort of, you know, positive vibes coming out on a kind of top level. But then there were also these undertones of concern and everything else so can you tell us like in terms of this year what do we need to be looking out for in terms of fairs well i mean as you mentioned our bars on miami beach if we could just go back to december i mean there was a flurry of sales or at least those press releases which proclaimed sales and they're always to be taken with a pinch of salt as so many deals as we know are done beforehand but i think there was a distinct sense that things were slowing down in miami this year, I mean, our esteemed colleague Georgina Adam is currently in Singapore for the first RSG, which has been postponed multiple times due to the pandemic. And she says that sales are very slow at the fair and that a number of dealers um, she has spoken to have sold nothing. She does say, you know, it's a new market, so it will take time. But, you know, is the coming recession playing a part? Probably. Looking slightly further ahead, we've got Freeze LA in February, which is the first of the Freeze fairs this year. And then TFAF Maastricht in March, um, which, as we know, has been beset by its own set of problems, not least, an, you know, an armed robbery last year on top of everything. <laughs> but these two fairs, I think, will be the big indicators of how the market is faring, both for contemporary and older works. And straight out of the block this year, I can't say things are looking too rosy. OK, now auction houses, on the other hand, have been posting record years in 2022. So tell us about that. Why? <laughs> well, yes, exactly. I mean, despite all the economic and political headwinds, here we had these enormous results from the auction houses at the end of last year. And apart from Sotheby's, which massaged its figures this year with cars and swanky pads in Bel Air, I mean, it <laughs> included property in its total. Christie's, Bonhams and Phillips actually all had record years, which I find astonishing, you know, given, you know, the macroeconomic situation. I think one of the main reasons for this, and certainly in the case of Christie's and Sotheby's, was the single owner collections. You know, they played a huge part. We had the Paul Allen, you know, 1.6 billion famously with fees and the two macro auctions, which brought in $922 million for Sotheby's. It's widely expected that we will see more of them, if not this year, in the next five to 10 years. And Josh Bear said in a recent edition of his, his Bear Facts trade newsletter that he thinks there are as many as 25 collections of the magnitude of the Maclos and that they could come to market in the next three to 10 years and create the same impact. So, you know, as long as we've got these bumper single owner collections, then, then the auction houses will be hungry for them, using all the financial instruments, including guarantees to win them and then finding the, the super wealthy to buy them. And, and I think that's another reason the auction houses have done so well. It's, it's down to the 0.01% of the astronomically rich people who continue to spend money on, on art. And, and, you know, their wealth has been largely untouched by the pandemic. Um, and all it takes is a handful of these people to keep the plates spinning. Absolutely. I mean, I suppose, you know, the question, and it was it's something I explored a little with Georgina last year, which was this idea of, of yes, there, there are these big collections, but it's those three Ds that you need to line up in order for these collections to come to the market, debt, divorce and death. So, so there are some sort of unknown elements, some parameters that need to align, as it were, in order for these things to come to market, right? Yes, yes, exactly. It's, it's a good point. You can't account for all of them, but they are happening with enough regularity that the auction houses are managing to survive on them. You talked about collectors there. You have detected a rise in millennial collectors. What does that mean for the market? How is it shaping the market? I mean, I think this is an interesting one and to look in relation to these collections that have very different tastes. I mean, if you look at the Paul Allen collection or the Maclose collection, 
I think what auction houses are now doing is, is, is in order to shore up some of their business as they're looking to the future. And, and one trend that has really accelerated since the pandemic is the rise of millennial collectors. You know, Christie's really pushed this stat in their end of year call with Guillaume Chiruti last year that millennials represented 21% of Christie's buyers globally. And what I think is interesting about millennials is that they often start out buying luxury goods. So they buy the sneakers, they buy the watches, they buy the wine, and then they transition to art. So like luxury is almost like the gateway drug to fine art for auction houses. And what we're seeing is that, and I think what we will see more of is that there are these crossovers between collectibles and fine art and sports jerseys and, and fine wine, you know, which will ensure in the long term that auction houses, they appeal to the broader, more informal taste of the next generation and, and it will ensure that they, they stay relevant. Um, so I think this is a trend that we're going to just see really mushroom and grow in the next year or two. You asked Simon de Puri, the famous auctioneer, to do some predictions. I just wanted to pick up on a couple of those relating to art, actually, that, that you've, you've already mentioned guarantees, which is something that he mentioned, for instance. But there's a couple of points he made about art, which I think are quite interesting. On the one hand, he mentioned a slowdown in wet painting. Now, wet painting is this extraordinary mushrooming of a kind of painting, particularly figurative painting, and it's called wet painting because it was fresh out of the studios. You and I talked about it at the Freeze Art Fair, and this, this, again, it's, there's this category, the ultra-contemporary, which is you know almost a, a somewhere between a category and a genre, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We were talking about the boom in it, and Simone de Puri is, is already talking about a bust. How do you see that in the coming year? I mean, I think that's interesting that exactly we were talking about this in October and that was perhaps, you know, the beginning of the end. There was this sort of this fervour for it. There was, a, there was a thirst for it. There was a hunger for it. And I think Simon de Puri, as you mentioned, he thinks that that market will cool down in a matter of months with the realisation, as he puts it, that it could be a hot potato competition. You know, the last one in a rapidly increasing chain of buyers can easily be stuck and burned holding it. And, you know, this is often the case during economic downturns that, that people retreat from the riskier the newer names they don't want to bet on new names they don't want to take the risks they seek safety in more established blue chip artists so you know I think as we mentioned freeze could have been the beginning of the end and that people are now sort of seeking safety in in more blue chip names Indeed. It's curious, isn't it? Because when we talk about it from a market perspective, the people side of this goes. And, and many of these artists, for no fault of their own, are caught up in this market. And lots of them are going to get burned by it. I really hate that aspect of it because there are well-meaning artists, artists who are making actually really interesting work, who are going to get hurt by this. Their markets are going to fall off. And the art market can be brutal at times like this, can't it? I mean, I think it's a real concern for these young artists, many of them sort of in their 20s. I mean, you can imagine being picked up, puffed up, these enormous prices. And I know many of the artists that me and colleagues speak to are very concerned about those auction records. You know, it puts enormous pressure on them to keep producing, but there's not a great deal they can do it. And this is where their dealers become such, you know, an integral part of their career to try and protect them, to try and keep prices, you know, they want them to rise, but, you know, in a steady and healthy way. Absolutely. And you get this example of somebody like Oscar Murillo, who's who's emerged from a much derided movement, which was called zombie formalism and, and become a, a, you know, a widely shown artist and, and his, his market has been maintained. But he's one of the few examples of that. Let's talk about NFTs. It's really interesting. I was looking through a former predictions for 2022 by Anna Brady, our colleague, and she canvassed all sorts of opinions from the art market world at that time. And all of these people are talking about the importance of NFTs. 
one person warns of a crash. Everybody else is saying there's going to be much more connection between traditional art forms and NFTs. NFTs are just only going to grow in their importance. At the end of last year, we're talking about a massive crash in NFTs. Is the NFTs moment over or will 2023 offer more excitement around NFTs? I mean, I really hope not. I, I, and I think many people are sort of over this, but I mean, it's interesting. As you say, I, I think I wrote about it in Miami in 2021, in December 2021, that there was a big push for this marriage of art and crypto and, you know, how things have changed in just a year. As you say, there was the huge crypto crash of 2022. NFTs were sort of barely to be seen in Miami. Simon de Puri has a really interesting take on this. He talks about the initial gold rush and fever that's clearly cooled down, but he thinks that NFTs, digital art and the use of blockchain in the art market are here to stay. And I'd largely agree with him on the blockchain. You know, there are plenty of ways it can be used by the art industry to verify authenticity and provenance to track sales, that kind of thing. But, you know, Simon makes an interesting comparison and he says in many ways it's only the real beginning now, you know, as was the case after the initial dot-com bubble burst 20 years ago. So, you know, perhaps, and, you know, it might be worth finishing on an optimistic note, perhaps the best is yet to come. I, I don't think so personally, but, you know, let's finish with some optimism. So perhaps, you know, the best is yet to come. That's a lovely way to end. Thank you, Annie. Thanks very much. You can read more about the Masterpiece cancellation and Simon de Puri's predictions on the website or our app for Android or iOS. Coming up, we look ahead at the top museum openings and the exhibitions of the year. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. The United States might rejoin the United Nations culture and education body UNESCO more than four years after their most recent departure. The US formally withdrew in 2019, with President Trump denouncing UNESCO's anti-Israeli bias. Now, an article in the $1.7 trillion omnibus appropriations bill passed by the US Congress on 22nd of December paves the way for the Biden administration to rejoin and finance UNESCO, as well as paying $616 million in unpaid membership dues. The rupture between UNESCO and its main donor began much earlier, in 2011, when a majority of its members accepted Palestine into their ranks as a member state. The Obama administration had no choice but to abide by a 1990 law forbidding funding to any international body acknowledging Palestine as an independent state. But the article that Congress adopted in December grants a waiver to that law. A body found in the Eye River in Amsterdam is that of the missing art dealer Alexander Levin, according to Dutch police. The torso, discovered in 2013, was wrapped in plastic and missing its head and limbs. DNA testing seemingly revealed the victim's identity in 2021, but details have only just been released publicly, as authorities have been struggling to contact Levin's family. The dealer is said to have specialised in icons, according to the Dutch daily newspaper Telegraph, which also claims that he was convicted in 1999 for smuggling art. And finally, a robot taking the form of the Japanese artist Yayoi Kusama has appeared in the window of the Louis Vuitton, or LV, store on Fifth Avenue in New York. The Kusama bot appears to paint her trademark polka dots on the glass of the window. It's part of a new partnership between the artist and the luxury brand on a collection that includes more than 450 pieces, including bags, fragrances and trainers. It's the second time they've collaborated. And Kusama Mania seems to have extended to the inaugural Art SG Fair in Singapore, which opened this week, where a number of her works were for sale on the booths and outside the fair, according to our reporter Georgina Adam, Kasama LV posters were everywhere. 
You can read all these stories and much more on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This January, Christie's New York presents Americana Week in four auctions, featuring Things Grow in the United States, works from the Jane Fonda collection. Experience masterful 19th century American paintings from the Pollock collection, alongside folk art, Chinese export porcelain, Chippendale furniture, and various fine examples of colonial craftsmanship. Visit christies.com slash Americana Week for more. Welcome back. Now, 2023 promises a bounty of exhibitions, biennales and museum openings. I spoke to Jose de Silva, who co-edited the newspaper's guide to the year ahead, and Jane Morris, one of our editors at large, to pick out at least some of the big events across the year. I'll give full details of the events we discuss at the end of the conversation. We're going to begin this year by talking about the big sort of building projects. There are a lot of them and we're trying to narrow it down to just a few. And Jane, the Grand Egyptian Museum is something that has formed part of many a year ahead discussion at the art newspaper. You were editor up until 2016. You, I'm sure you probably had lots of discussions about this and lots of articles, etc. So where are we at with the Grand Egyptian Museum? Well, it's supposed to be opening this year. I don't think we've actually got a date, have we, Jose? Jose, you worked on the, the year ahead this year, I believe. Um, no, the dates tend to be quite vague with the Grand Egyptian Museum. I think we featured it in the last few year ahead, <laughs> definitely coming this year. Obviously, COVID was a big kind of a, a legitimate delay. I mean, I think it was announced in the early 90s when it was, that it was going to be built. So we've got you know, 30 years in the making. I mean, there have been tours of it now where it looks like the building really, I mean, a lot of the installation is complete. It does seem highly likely that 2023 will finally be the year. Um, It was supposed to open, I believe, in 2011. The foundation stone was laid in 2002. It was actually announced in 1992. Having said all that, I think it is probably the most anticipated museum opening in the world this year. It's absolutely massive. I mean, I think somebody described it as the size of an aircraft hangar. And apparently the atrium is so large, you could park a 747 in it. They have already installed an absolutely massive, like 11 metres high sculpture of Ramesses the Great. I believe they actually built the atrium around that sculpture. And it's going from prehistory right the way through the period we wanted to see, the pharaonic era. There's going to be 7,000 square metres, I believe, devoted to Tutankhamun. It's the most complete Tutankhamun collection. I mean, it's going to be a huge tourist attraction. And I think the important thing to say, it's not in Cairo. It's in Giza. It's a couple of kilometres away from the pyramids. So the idea is that you will see these amazing objects and you can look out and see the pyramids. And apparently you can walk to the pyramids say about two kilometres away. There's going to be an enormous uh, approach walkway. Apparently it's longer than the Champs-Élysées. It's absolutely massive. It's cost an absolute fortune. It's cost a billion dollars. It was supposed to be, I think, 500 million all those years ago in 1992. I mean, it's obviously a really big tourist attraction. Absolutely. One of the things about this, I think, is that it's a marker of the way museums are going in the sense that think of how many museum collections have been based on this international principle and look at how complete this Tutankhamun 
display will be, for instance. There's so much emphasis on localism within museums now and a, and a sort of almost a reversal of the sort of international museum, the kind of encyclopedic museum. And this will be a kind of marker of a very, very particular kind of new museum, right? Well, I certainly think the Egyptians' government certainly definitely see it as a way of reclaiming their heritage. And they've said that on a number of occasions. And I think that's completely understandable. Having said that, it is going to come right up to the Greek and Roman period. And you you can't tell a history of the ancient world without talking about all kinds of cross connections between different cultures. I think it's more that museums in countries in Africa, for example, are now wanting to build their own museums. They're wanting to tell their own story. And I think that's completely justified. I mean, I think although I'm emphasising the fact that it's going to be a big tourist attraction, and that is one of the reasons the government built it, they said it to reclaim their heritage, but also they need to earn revenue. They've borrowed a lot of money, I believe, from Japan. They've actually been getting a lot of investment generally from Japan to build the museum. But they are also using it as a great opportunity for their own archaeologists and conservators to work with some of the world's best. So it's been a huge training exercise as well. I think it feels also like a big homecoming, a kind of full stop. You've had this Tutankhamun exhibition kind of touring around the world, raising money for the museum. And it's like everything's coming home now, finally. And once it opens, it will be kind of... Uh, Perhaps the beginning of a new, as, as Ben's touched upon, a new type of museum, uh, you know, no longer this kind of overarching, uh, extensive, you know, museums of the past trying to cover everything around the world. It's almost like, you know, looking at their own history in, in a very kind of comprehensive way and bringing their treasures home in a way. Yeah. I mean, I love the British Museum. Uh, I love seeing the, the Parthenon marbles in the British Museum, but I think we most of us agree that it's probably going to be better to see the Parthenon marbles in the place they were created. I think this is very much the same. It's going to be wonderful to see the world's greatest collection of Egyptian antiquities right next to the pyramids. Absolutely. We're now going to talk about two UK museums. The National Portrait Gallery actually closed its doors at a awful time, but a time which for the museum was actually serendipitous in the sense that it closed its doors just before the covid pandemic hit and therefore it was rather more immune to lots of the problems that have faced lots of other uk museums and international museums of course what's the plan for the mpg jane it's a a renovation rather than an expansion there will be more permanent gallery space but the building can't expand it's basically stuck on the site it's in which is next to the National Gallery on one side and hemmed in by Charing Cross Road on the other. So the idea is to sort of clarify the building, I would say. There have been a number of renovations. I think there was a big one in the 1930s, then again in the 90s, and then more work done in the 2000s. And there's a bit of a feeling that the building has become a bit fragmented. So theoretically, the building should look a lot better and be more easy for visitors to navigate. The entrance is changing. The current entrance really is quite cramped and underwhelming. And apparently the reason that is the current entrance is at the whim of a a funder in the past. So basically it 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 was put on that side of the building because it didn't want to face Soho, which was then a den of iniquity. And and now it's opening up to Soho. Which is, I mean, it's less of a den of iniquity, I suppose, than it used to be, although you may sort of question the charms of Leicester Square. But anyway, it's going to have a big new entrance on the north side and a public plaza, so it'll have a much more welcoming entrance. Um, and then within the, the museum, all the permanent galleries are being rehung and reinterpreted. 
Jose, your experience of the MPG, tell me what you think. I mean, mine is is very fragmented. The galleries have always felt a bit awkward. Absolutely, I was going to say the same. Um, I think when you, yeah, when you enter, you feel as if you've entered into a sort of three museums in one. You've got these different kind of sections that seem to have been designed piecemeal. You have the escalator kind of going up uh, after you come into the foyer. You're never quite sure where the kind of permanent collection begins or ends. Um, for many years, I'd never been upstairs. I didn't even, despite that escalator being there, the kind of Donald Trumpian escalator, <laughs> I had never made my way upstairs. I'd always kind of remained on the ground floor seeing the kind of temporary exhibitions. So, that I, I mean, I think the idea is to to make visitor experience a much better one. And I think by moving the entrance, that, that should help. You know, coming off this extremely busy road, right by a zebra crossing, it was, feels as if it's kind of choked with traffic and pollution. Yeah. So having the entrance on the other side and obviously maybe we'll touch upon this new addition that the NPG have bought. Well let's do let's talk let's talk about this to be clear this is not opening this year but the NPG have acquired a Victorian loo and a kiosk a 1980s kiosk which was once selling concert tickets and so on yeah. Yes absolutely and I think despite it turning its its, its kind of face towards Leicester Square which as as James touched upon is not the greatest of squares in in london this kiosk which we used to sell you know kind of tickets to the west end and downstairs as a toilet in some ways it's kind of embedding the museum back into its area with leicester square and perhaps adding a bit of actual glamour to leicester square as opposed to this kind of faux glamour that, that some of the other um restaurants and and bars around there attempt to add Let's talk about the factory in Manchester now. Um, it, the factory is Factory International, to give it its proper name, is an extraordinarily vast and important building because it's the first OMA public building, so Brem Coolhouse's company, effectively architectural um, practice in the UK. And I think it's a really significant building. What's going to be interesting is to what extent is it going to operate in a kind of conventional or progressive way? It's a multidisciplinary space, Jane. I'm very interested to see what happens with this one. It's going to be programmed by the people who program the Manchester International Festival. It is a very big space. I did realise that. I think it's like 13,500 square metres, something like that. It's supposed to be very, very flexible. In many ways, it reminded me of The Shed in New York, which um, the former director of the Manchester International Festival, Alex Poots, now runs. Now, I can't believe it's got the same kind of budgets that The Shed has got, but it's got many of the same ideas. It's going to be a mix of gigs and art and dance and fashion. I'm not sure how many of our listeners will know the history of Factory, because when you think of the Factory, I think a lot of our American listeners will think of Andy Warhol and New York it's named after Factory Records which was an enormously influential record label in the late 70s and early 80s in Manchester it was the record label of people like Joy Division and New Order and Factory Records also ran the Hacienda which was this legendary club which I'm afraid I am actually old enough to remember (laughs) and I think that this space, I, I'm getting the sense, wants to pick up on that kind of zeitgeist, that it's a real mix of different kind of cultural influences. And they're talking about programming really kind of across different sort of uh, popular and more traditional art forms. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm really interested to see what they do with it. I wonder how it's going to work. I wonder how the financing is going to work. But I will say for Manchester... There has been an amazing transformation in Manchester. When I think of, I actually come from near Liverpool, and when I think of what happened in Liverpool, now Liverpool has changed vastly, but for a long, long time, Manchester was 
on the rise. It was spending money on the Bridgewater Hall. It spent a lot of money on the Manchester Art Gallery. It refurbished the Central Library, which is an incredible Victorian space. Uh, It set up Manchester International Festival. It built the Lowry. Manchester just seemed to be doing all this incredible stuff. And I suppose because it's in Manchester... I'm more inclined to think they'll have worked out how to make the economic model work more than I might do in some other places. I guess my one worry for it is similar to the Manchester International Festival, which has several strands to it, is whether the certain strands kind of lose out. So the visual arts might either not get as much funding or or perhaps be overlooked so with with Manchester International Festival I think most people concentrate on the the kind of the music side I think those are the big names the big concerts music and theatre isn't it really yeah and then and then you, you occasionally there are some very good visual arts kind of offerings but they often get overlooked by by the I guess the press because there's so many other big names beyond that so that's my only kind of concern for it and I hope I hope to be proved wrong I mean this is probably a snobbish comment but I was slightly deflated by the idea that the first visual arts presentation is Yayo Kusama's Inflatables. And mm. I, I just felt, obviously, Yayo Kusama is an extraordinarily popular artist. We featured her on this podcast. She's a remarkable artist and achieved great things. I think her current work is vastly overstretched in terms of its presentation across the world and now in Louis Vuitton windows across the world. And I feel like... Is Kusama really the way to say we're a progressive institution? You've got to get the numbers in. I know you've got to get visitors in, but I still feel that's that's a bit of a, yeah. Yeah, and I'd, I'd like to see this place actually doing some really cutting edge stuff with younger people. And I, I did have a similar nervousness when I saw Kusama because when you think of Kusama's early work, it's really exciting exactly. and it's really radical. And I did think, very much like you, I did think, oh, has that just been has that just been brought in to sell tickets? Yeah, so we'll have to see how this one develops. We're now going to talk about Biennales this year. It's come after a year of Venice and Documenta, so a massive year for Biennales. This year is quieter, but there are some uh, important recurring exhibitions. The first one I want to talk about is Sharjah. And this is actually... Really interesting to me because it's it's effectively the last Biennale curated by one of the great Biennale curators, and that's Okwi and Wezor. So he conceived of the concept before he died in 2019, and it has been carried forward by a team of people and the director of the Sharjah Art Foundation. It's an extraordinary show. I mean, 30 new commissions, including works by Doris Salcedo and Nari Ward, for instance, And, you know, so many top names, it's unbelievable. Jane? Well, I don't know what to make of this one, if I'm totally honest. There's no doubt in my mind that Oakquiem Resort was one of the great curators. I can't pretend that I saw the 2002 documenta that really made him famous, although I think we've all written about it and read about it over the years. I mean, I think his 2015 Venice was an absolute triumph, and it's certainly the best one I've ever seen. He's obviously mostly known, I suppose, for some people say displacing Europe and US as the centre of artistic production. He was incredibly knowledgeable about artists from Europe and the US. So I'm not sure displacing is quite the right word, but certainly he widened it massively. He widened it to include a lot of artists from Africa, the Caribbean, Latin America, Middle East, Asia. In the 2015 Venice, I referred to He brought in a lot of black American and black British and European artists and put them alongside people like Georg Baselitz. And, you know, he put 
Karl Marx at the centre of the whole thing. The other show of his that I saw that I really admired was Post-War at the Haus der Kunst, and that sort of shifted the, the post-war narrative from the US versus the USSR and just talked about how it had affected the whole world from the Pacific to the Atlantic. There was a particularly interesting involvement of Japanese artists. So I think he's a brilliant curator. I just don't know, because I've never personally curated something like this, how much it can be done without you being there right the way through the process. I think there's an example, and again, it depends upon how far the process has got by the time he died but grief and grievance at the new museum a show that he curated was clearly very effective but that may have just been further down the line than than this is but I think one of the things to say about this show it's called thinking historically in the present so in a way that's a summary of lots of the the kind of zeitgeisty ideas that he brought in and have since been duplicated acknowledged explored by very many other curators let's talk about another one which I think has lots of those themes connected to it actually which is the Gwangju Biennale, which which is in South Korea. The curator of this, the overall curator, is Suk Kyung Lee, who is actually a curator at the Tate. And she's working directly with Karen Greenberg, who was a former curator at the Tate. So it's got a good pedigree. Its title is Soft and Weak Like Water, and it taps into Taoist philosophy. But it seems to me, Jane, that there are some really kind of zeitgeisty themes of a lot of contemporary art shows in this one. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also worth saying that Guangzhou is one of the really big, important uh, biennials. I think it would be fair to say that, um, I mean, if you say there's like maybe five or six that are the real sort of top must-see if you possibly can, Guangzhou is one of those, and it's the... I would say it's the leading Biennale in Asia. It's the 14th um, edition, so that shows that it has a certain longevity. and yeah, it has, it has a lot of funding as well. It was founded in, I think, 1995. They quite often alternate, I think, between Korean curators and international curators. Now, in this case, Su Kung Lee, I would argue, is kind of both. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> because she's been at the Tate a long time, but she is also was at Liverpool. You know, she works with a lot of international artists so yeah the themes although this another of those kind of terrible biennale names now I must admit if I had to come up with a biennale name I don't know what I'd come up with either but you know another of those rather open you know titles but apparently it's something to do with water's ability to embrace contradictions and flow round things which I think is quite interesting anyway it sounds like there's four main themes resistance Traditions being placed really counter to, you know, modernism, traditional modernism, migration and ecology. There's some very interesting artists, um, including Malga Tozata Mergatas, who you might remember from Documenta and Venice. She's a Roma artist who makes these incredible embroidered tapestries, really, really beautiful. And the ones in Documenta, I have to say, were absolutely gorgeous. Other artists include uh, Dianita Singh, Alberta Whittle, David Zinke, and some artists I didn't know. It, it does sound like a really interesting Biennale. It's a long way to go, obviously, if you're based where we are. But our listeners uh, in Asia, I'm sure, will be going, and, and hopefully some of us will too. <laughs> We're going to turn to exhibitions now. And there is one anniversary in the art world this year that is vastly more important than others. And we have the evidence of that in the fact that there are 50 exhibitions dedicated to it. Jose, it's the 50th anniversary of Picasso's death. Uh, Yes, that's right. Um, 50 years since he died. Uh, I think the anniversary is in April. 
50 exhibitions or, or slightly over 50 exhibitions. I mean, every year there are several Picasso exhibitions around the world, such as his output. Um, and I think the other thing is that his output also lends itself very well to have simultaneous exhibitions around the world. You can't do that with many artists. You can maybe have two or three, but not 50 exhibitions. And also because he had well, a very long career, but also a very uh, varied career, you can also have different thematic exhibitions. So I think several exhibitions will be concentrating on different things. So, for example... There are exhibitions on different media that he used. So um, in, in Malaga, at the Museo Picasso in Malaga, they're doing a show about his sculpture. That museum is also celebrating its 20th anniversary and they've, they've invited back the first director to curate that show. There are other exhibitions on, on his ceramics. Elsewhere, there are shows focusing on pairings. So this is quite a common thing. Every year there's a and Picasso show, so an artist and Picasso. And often the links can be quite tenuous. Um, I won't mention any recent ones, but... For example, there will be an exhibition at the the Prado Museum in Madrid, um, pairing him with El Greco, who was a major influence on his work. That opens in June. Um, another exhibition in Lyon, pairing him with Nicolas Poussin. Elsewhere, there will be shows with kind of some of his contemporaries. So um, the Museo Picasso in Barcelona is partnering him up with um, Joan Miro. And in uh, I think there's a show in Germany, pairing him up with Max Beckman at the Height Museum um, that opens in September and actually perhaps one of the more interesting ones is his um, relationship with uh, the American writer Gertrude Stein who is, she was influential on his career and, and vice versa and uh, the Musée du Luxembourg in Paris is, is doing a show on that kind of relationship friendship in, in September this year I think perhaps Ben you've written about this before very few artists these days sort of reference him as an influence and I guess there are probably several reasons for that, but in some ways it's like saying your favourite band of the Beatles, you sound like Alan Partridge. Um, <laughs> however, I, I still think his influence is there, but perhaps people aren't necessarily bringing it to the, to the fore. It's, it's so obvious that it's unacknowledged in yes, a way. Yeah, yes, yeah. It's, yes. it's a curious one, but I, I'm interested in this whole idea because I do think, and I think this is a really exciting thing, actually, that the scope for scholarship about Picasso now is richer than perhaps at any other time because some of the gatekeepers are no longer grabbing hold of him and not letting him be interpreted more broadly and more widely. And, of course, John Richardson was an extraordinary biographer and, in, in the end, curating Picasso shows all across the world. But it was it was like you had to do Picasso through his eyes to a certain extent. And I, I feel like there's an opportunity through this anniversary, to really, really explore Picasso in the broadest sense. And he is an extraordinary and brilliant artist and achieves so much in so many different ways. And things like, there's a show at MoMA in New York, which is looking at three months of his life in Fontainebleau. And in its own way, it sort of dismantles some of that sort of biographical reading of Picasso's work. The thing that John Richardson always used to say, and it was very compelling, was that with each change in his life, every time he changed a partner the surroundings would change, the dog would change, the circle of friends would change, the poet he referred to would change. But the show about Picasso and Fontainebleau looks at three months in which he makes three musicians on the one hand and then three women at the spring at the other hand in 1921. Three musicians is in the cubist idiom. Three women at the spring is within that sort of neoclassical bulky sculptural tradition. They are entirely different kinds of work and therefore it kind of gives the lie to just thinking about Picasso through the biography. That said, there is this extraordinary show which I think 
we don't we don't really know much about it. All we know is is at the Brooklyn Museum in June, and it's curated by Hannah Gadsby, among others. And Hannah Gadsby is the comedian. Is she really even a comedian? She's a commentator. She's an art historian as well. And she has declared that she hates Picasso. She has declared he is a misogynist, which I think is pretty indisputable. So that's what I mean about that scope, that exciting scope for rereading Picasso. Jane, you pointed out when we were looking through all the exhibitions this year that there were quite a lot of the kind of blockbustery shows. What do you think the reasons might be for that? Well, it's hard to know, but it, there's certainly a feeling of museums thinking they need to get their audiences back. I mean, these shows must be expensive to mount. I know we're going to talk about Vermeer in a minute, but the sort of shows I'm really thinking about is there are big Twombly shows, there are big O'Keefe shows, there's Klimt shows and Van Gogh shows. Uh, there's Diego Rivera, there's Matisse, Philip Guster, and I could go on. There's a lot of people really from the early, mid-20th century that are the big names that most people will have heard of, and I imagine these shows will be very successful. Yeah, I mean, I just think the museums must be... Well, we know they've all taken a huge hit financially, a great number of them. These shows are very expensive to mount, but they are the sort of shows that will get sponsorship, And they're also the sorts of shows that will get footfall. I'm not just saying they're doing it for money either. I mean, there's been a bit of a tendency to be a bit sneery about blockbuster shows. But I think it's worth reminding people that blockbusters were really created to create shows that people who don't normally go to art shows come and see. They were really devised as part of the museum world trying to be more accessible and bringing in new people and not just talking to the inner art world. Of course, there's always a question from the inner art world point of view, I suppose, about whether the show then tells you something new. But I I think museums are trying to signal that they're here and make themselves relevant to their audiences again, because a lot of people still haven't really gone out to very much, I think. I get the sense also there's there's an ambition to put on really big shows after the kind of two or three years of COVID pandemic and lockdowns and, and kind of stuttering shows opening and closing. And I feel there's a renewed kind of energy for bringing shows together such as I think we'll touch on the Vermeer show soon you know this is an unprecedented show and I think I feel as if the museums are suddenly going well it's now or never let's just do this yeah it's interesting isn't it that and that sort of thing of uh, I remember having conversations with museum directors saying we're going to really focus on the collection from you know this is this is a chance to rethink and really get the collection being at the core of what we do and of course they are doing that but but yes we have in front of us a list of shows which are just absolutely you know some of the most notable shows ever and while I do think it is important to do what you can with your collection and it's also true that there's a lot of artwork sort of neglected in stores you do sort of also need the collection if that makes sense in that there are lots and lots and lots of museums that do not have really great permanent collections and certainly don't have strength in depth in, let's say, the early part or mid part of the 20th century. So I think it's a bid for museums to remind people that they're relevant and they, they've got things to offer. You've mentioned the Vermeer show at the Rijksmuseum, opens in February, February the 10th. I think this is a genuine once-in-a-lifetime show it's not just a once in a generation show it's the first show in a generation but i think given that vermeer's output is 37 paintings the rijks museum contends and there are 28 in this exhibition jane is that unprecedented and unrepeatable well there were 23 at the moritz house in 1996 but every time as the years go on more and more lenders are going to say works are too fragile and there's a number 
of museums and, and collections, including the Royal Collection, but haven't lent this show on the grounds that the works are too fragile. Now, I do slightly wonder why their Vermeers are any more fragile than anybody else's Vermeers. I suspect they're all quite fragile. <laughs> um, so I'm, I think it's a pity that the Royal Collection didn't lend. And I can understand also a lot of museums don't want to lend their great pictures because it's the main star attraction that people come to see. And I'm sure we've all turned up at museums and found that a picture that we particularly wanted to see was missing. So I think... The fact that the Rice Museum has managed to assemble this is an amazing feat. I agree. And I would urge anybody listening to this to just go to the Rice Museum's website and look at the section where they say which works are in the show. And as you scoop down that list and see each one, each image, each painting, the kind of force of all this great art, one after the other, it really is kind of breathtaking, actually. And I don't know what it's going to be like to be in that room and see all those works. It's going to be very crowded for a start, but it's going to be pretty astonishing to see all of them together. I'm also quite interested, though, because we touched on this with the blockbusters, like does a curator or a group of curators bring new ideas and new scholarship? I believe a new biography is coming out and it's written by one of the curators of the exhibition, uh, Gregor Weber, I think most of us probably do think of Vermeer as quite a secular painter. And it's one of the reasons we like him, isn't it? Because we don't have to deal with a lot of Catholic imagery and a lot of classical allegory or indeed lots of paintings of kings and queens and aristocrats. These are secular scenes that we can all relate to. Well, my understanding is that this new biography is actually going to put uh, Vermeer in a more spiritual and indeed religious context and I'm fascinated to see how that'll work. Exactly. There's a tradition, really, in Vermeer studies that it becomes a much more formal exercise. It's all about the camera obscura. But even that, for instance, his use of the camera obscura is linked to the Jesuits. So this is all very interesting, a kind of new art historical idea around the show, as well as this sort of extraordinary gathering of, of paintings. I think the interesting thing about the show as well is that, unlike previous shows, there won't be much filler by other artists. So they're, going to, they're focusing on just Vermeer works, and most largely chronologically. And also the works are very small. If, if you've never seen Vermeer's in real life, you're always surprised by how small they are. You expect them to be bigger for whatever reason. So I think it'd be a, a real chance to get to grips just with his work in order as well and, and see his development over, over his lifetime. I mean, I suppose the only thing I hope is that the visitor experience is a good one because it'll be very sad if we're so crammed in that we can't really um, appreciate it. I'm not quite sure how they're going to to do that but I do hope people will have the chance to stand in front of the paintings and really look one tip book for the last couple of hours put up with the crowds for one hour go back to the start of the exhibition for the last hour that's a fantastic tip (laughs) okay so uh, another blockbuster show we'll move reasonably swiftly through lots of these shows but uh, another major exhibition is Manet Dugas which is at the Musée d'Orsay in Paris in March and then moves to the Met in New York 150 paintings and works on paper two artists who are linked through friendship Dugas drew and painted Manet very powerfully but also in some ways a very different Manet great progressive Dugas arch conservative despite the extraordinary leaps that he made with his art I'm hugely excited about this show because they are two of the great painters as far as I'm concerned, the two great users of paint of that period, both outside of Impressionism in their own way, both using new subjects as a means to push 
a profound engagement with the art of the past in a new direction. It should be extraordinary. I love the fact that they perhaps apocryphally met in front of a Velasquez in the Louvre whilst copying it. All that kind of stuff. It's all so rich and it should be one of those shows where it's just gasp after gasp, I would hope. One last sort of coda to the kind of blockbuster show is it's kind of almost like an anti-blockbuster in the sense that it involves a blockbuster name who is Velasquez, but actually it's not about Velasquez, it's about Juan de Pareja, who was the subject of one of the greatest paintings of all time, I think, the portrait by Velasquez. He was an enslaved man who was in Velasquez's studio for a couple of decades. He was painted by Velasquez in Rome, and in Rome, on that same trip, while Velasquez was acquiring works for the Spanish Royal Collection, he signed the contract of manumission which freed Juan de Pereja, who was then to go on to build his career as a painter in himself. And there'll be amazing examples of his own paintings, multi-figure compositions, religious subjects, um, incredible tumultuous baptism of Christ, for instance, in the Prado. But it will also look at the enslaved artisans who were widespread in that period of the golden age of Spanish paintings in the Baroque period. I think it sounds like a really, really exciting show. The book, too, I think will be a landmark bit of scholarship. So I think that is a kind of example of a, an old master show, which is really genuinely progressive and pushing scholarship in a new direction. And that's at the Met in April. While we're in the US, let's do a whole host of other US shows. Jose, we both saw Simone Lee's American Pavilion at the last Venice Biennale and you wrote about it. Yes, it was probably the highlight, I think probably the best pavilion at the Biennale. That presentation of work was a very kind of measured and composed exhibition. She'd clad the exterior of the um, pavilion in a kind of grass skirt and as visitors arrived, there was this towering seven metre tall bronze female figure based on artefacts made by the bagger people of what is now Guinea in West Africa. The whole exhibition was basically an artist in her prime. And as with many things that were shown in Venice, they then transferred to major exhibitions elsewhere. So this will be uh, shown at the ICA in Boston in April as the kind of final part of a, a, of a career survey. That show will then travel to the Herschel Museum in Washington and LACMA later uh, next year. I think Simone Lee, as you say, an artist absolutely in her prime, a brilliant Venice presentation. One of the things that it had was that incredible confidence, I think, you know, that an artist, when they find their metier and they're in that kind of groove where almost everything they're producing is totally fantastic, you know, and everything they're doing is so powerful and the language and the subject matter are so perfectly tied together. It seems pretty astonishing to me that this is her first survey in the States, actually, because she seems like a senior artist already. I mean, and actually, think about it, she's really only emerged into a much broader consciousness over the last sort of five years or so. Mm, absolutely. I think the the work at the Venice Biennale was also exploring the kind of black female body and imagery of the African diaspora. Yeah, as you said, an artist completely in control of her work. A lot of the kind of other pavilions sometimes feel a bit thrown together there's that element of the the festival this felt like a years in the making and and so confident and I think I was very surprised to learn this is the first a major museum exhibition of her work in in the US and one that people in Boston or nearby should definitely go and see. Jane let's talk about Barclay Hendricks at the Frick that looks like a great show. Yeah, no, I think the the Frick is obviously closed for renovation. So it's currently moved out to, it's called the Frick Madison. Most of us will remember it as the old Breuer building, which um, used to be the home of the Whitney and then briefly uh, was taken over by the Metropolitan Museum. Barclay Hendricks, he died, I think, in 2016 in his early 70s. 
People who saw The Soul of the Nation show will probably remember these portraits. He paints these incredible portraits of black subjects uh, that often in incredible sort of cool 70s, 80s clothes. They're sometimes very large. They're on very plain backgrounds usually. Very self-confident. People are looking face forward. They're looking out of the canvas at you. And he based these works, or he used to say that he had really been inspired by works by Van Dyck and Velasquez, which he first saw when he was travelling in Europe as an undergraduate student. So it seems really fitting that the Frick is going to hang these alongside paintings by Rembrandt and Van Dyck and Bronzino. He's another artist, very much like you were saying with Simone Lee, that he had a long career... But he didn't really start to come through into sort of more, I guess, national in America and then international sense until around 2008, 2009. I think he joined Jack Shaneman Gallery in 2009. And Trevor Schoenmacher did a show with him in the Nasher that went to the Studio Museum. And I think that's when people started to really talk about him. I think he's also interesting because he's had a lot of influence on people who've come after him. And I think it would be fair to say, and I think the curators of this show, Amy Ng and Antoine Sargent, have indeed said it, that it's very hard to look at work by, say, Kahinda Wiley or Amy Sherald and not see, you know, Hendrix kind of as a figure behind him. So this sounds like a great show. I'd love to see it. You're absolutely right. I did an interview with Nick Cave on our Brushwood podcast and Nick Cave name-checked Barclay Hendrick. So he's an enormously influential figure. And, and they are such sumptuous paintings. They're extraordinary things. Apparently he was a really tough art school tutor. Ah, interesting. <laughs> Another story, a feature in the art newspaper. OK, let's move on to Alma Thomas at Smithsonian. I have had a calendar of Alma Thomas's works on my wall for the last year at home. And I have to say, living with a Alma Thomas's paintings, even in reproduction every day, has been an extraordinary and uplifting experience. And I think that's what she was really aiming for, Jane. Yeah, I mean, this is she was also a teacher, I should say, although I think she was a school teacher, yeah. um, <laughs> unlike Barclay Hendricks, who was an artist who taught at art school. She's showing at the Smithsonian. Again, she died in the late 70s. And just quite close to her death, she had a f- her first show at the Whitney because she taught all her life she had got a fine art degree from Harvard she was one of the first people to get a fine art degree from Harvard in the 1920s but she spent most of her career as a teacher and it was only when she retired that she really started focusing on her own work and I think that you said it's been wonderful living with them I first clapped eyes on one of all places at an art fair at Basel Miami Beach some years ago and The painting caught my eye because it was so joyful and uplifting. She painted these beautiful abstract paintings. She would paint these brush marks almost like sort of, I don't know what you'd call them, almost like tablets or or slabs. Sometimes they're kind of arranged like tiles and sometimes in concentric circles. And there's often more brilliant paint in the background and darker colours on top. So there's a very kind of um, transcendental, joyful feel about them. There's a sort of luminous quality to them. She said that she wanted to make work that was optimistic and life-affirming. She didn't want to paint about the dark things in life. She said she was very interested in science and discovery. She liked modernism. And this should be a great show because she's somebody who... I think people who are very familiar with American art history now do know her work and there was quite a lot of interest I think when the Obamas picked one to put on the wall of the White House that's probably when a lot of us first got to hear of her but I think for a lot of Americans she is well known and she richly deserves this show. 
Absolutely, and that will tour around the States after the Smithsonian American Art Museum, I believe. Um, Hip-hop in Baltimore and St. Louis. So apparently it is 50 years since the birth of hip-hop. Did you know this? (laughs) Makes me feel very old. (laughs) I don't know who decided this, but apparently it is all placed back to DJ Cool Herc playing a breakbeat at a party in the Bronx 50 years ago. And there's been quite a few exhibitions, more probably around the music. And I think think Sotheby's did a sale of like hip-hop memorabilia and some art last year. Well, this sounds fun, doesn't it? It's going to be on at the Baltimore Art Museum and then the St. Louis Art Museum. One of the big points they want to make about it is the intersection or the crossovers between music, fashion, uh, street culture and art. And I think that's probably often true for a lot of artists. I think, you know, even sort of, you know, 50, 100 years ago, artists don't tend to live in isolation but it wants to capture this moment very much I think a sort of New York moment where a lot of these different sort of forms came together so Jean-Michel Basquiat will obviously be a big figure in this he hung out with a lot of musicians and in fact one of the things that's so interesting about him is the way that he merged art history and his deep knowledge of art history with the fact that he was certainly when he was very, you know, at his youngest, very connected to the kind of hip hop scene. And then there'll be more contemporary artists like Arthur Jaffa, Jordan Castile, uh, and Diana Lawson, Kehanda Wiley, etc. I think I think it should be a really interesting show. Indeed it will. Let's talk about a couple of other, I think, really notable shows where we can again see that canon expanding in, in US art museums. One I think that is really important is at the Whitney in April. It's of John Quick to see Smith at the Whitney. The Whitney's got quite a big collection of John Quick to see Smith already, and it seems like a, a natural home for this exhibition of a First Nations artist. I mean, I suppose it's interesting to note, isn't it, how little First Nations artists, how little Native American artists have really had any coverage anywhere, really. And I confess, I didn't really know very much about this artist at all. I saw a painting online, which for me, I looked at it and I thought, oh, this is really interesting. And it it was an outline of a buffalo. Dawn Quick to see Smith, she picks up on abstract expressionism and pop art, but then mixes it in with aspects of her own culture and also very profound concern for the way Native American culture has been destroyed. And I think she actually talked about it at one point when she was younger as a genocide that she was living through. This work, it has an outline of a buffalo with a star on it. There was this kind of abstracty expressionist background. The buffalo looked very ancient. And then the words spam were just written underneath it. And I thought, yeah, I mean, what a what a great image to talk about the industrialization of agriculture, industrialization of the land, and obviously the buffalo known for very different things in First Nations culture. So, yeah, I mean, very interesting artist, didn't know very much about her. Apparently she's working on a book for Thames and Hudson. Couldn't find any references to this online, but apparently she's working on a book of 250 Native American artists and she's been quite vocal about the fact that people are always phoning her up and saying do you know any Native American artists and she's saying there's a lot of us (laughs) so this is yeah a very timely show. There's also another work in the Whitney show which has a clear correspondence with Jasper Johnson's maps. Oh yeah 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 she she picks up on him a lot. It's a tribal map of Native American peoples so it's a really fascinating engagement with contemporary art 
during her lifetime and a, and a very long history of colonial destruction of Native American land. So I think it's really powerful. She's, she's also pretty witty, though. When you watch her on video and you read some of the things she writes, she's got a sharp wit that I think will appeal to a lot of people when they get to see this. Fantastic. There's one show I wanted to talk about of, a, of an artist from a slightly earlier period, and that's Remedios Varro at the Art Institute of Chicago. Remedios Varro is an artist who's been on the international art world's radar for a long time. She was connected to the Surrealist group. She was in the International Surrealist Exhibitions in 1938, for instance. She knew Andre Breton, who paid tribute to her after she died in 1963. She's got quite, I think, a very distinctive language in the sense that she fuses mysticism, occultism, of course, surrealist tropes, classic surrealist tropes, but also science. And the show's called Science Fictions. And it relates to the fact that, you know, Jules Verne was a massive influence on her, but also the way that she brought together kind of storytelling, fairy tales and science. You know, she was fascinated by physics as well as alchemy, as well as the occult. So there's this amazing tumultuous kind of melting pot of ideas and intellect. She was an incredible reader of theory. So it's all in this extraordinary melting pot of these very strange images. I know lots of people who have struggled with Romedos Varro's kind of fairy tale-like images, find them a bit kitschy. But once you get into it, I think her work is enormously rewarding, canvas by canvas. It is an incredibly rich language and one that you can really get lost in. So that show, it's only 25 paintings, but actually 25 paintings is a lot in terms of Remedios Ferro. They're so rich, so multifigured, and lots of it relates to a kind of personal mythology. So I think really fascinating. Actually. Yeah, she must have taken a very long time to paint them. It's interesting what you were saying about kitschy, though, because it shows how tastes move, doesn't it? That what was once kitschy is now much closer to fantasy and the fantastical and we're not so sniffy about those things anymore. I mean, we can just see the modernist canon loosening all around us, can't we? She went to a very strict school in Spain. I believe her father was a was an engineer, but her mother was a devout Catholic. So there was always that kind of science, religion, slight tension or mix, not quite sure. But she went to a very strict school. Now, as somebody who went to a very strict boarding school, she's got these paintings where there's all these girls in these sort of ivory towers doing very strange things. Well, I mean, they're sewing, but the sewing or the knitting or whatever is pouring out of these these buildings and something about that incredibly constrained you know upbringing where you're sort of made to do useless things I think really spoke to me I think she also reminds me of, there's been a kind of recent resurgence in in female surrealist artists and also there's a sense that, that surrealism wasn't just a thing at the early 20th century with these kind of mostly men going a bit crazy using <laughs> wild things it, Surrealism carried on throughout the 20th century. It fell out of fashion, as we've said, and this kind of kitschiness has maybe come back into fashion. For some reason, I was reminded a bit of the Dorothea Tanning show at Tate Modern Mm -hmm. in 2019, which was a fantastic show. And that kind of work maybe 20 years ago would have been very out of fashion. It wasn't, it's not very trendy. And another artist who was a friend of uh, Remedios Varos is um, Leonora Carrington, who again has had the kind of resurgence. Going back to the Venice Biennale, the main show was named after one of her books, The Milk of Dreams. So there's this kind of sense that Surrealism didn't end and hasn't ended either, and it carries on. It's actually really interesting that Remedios Varro and Carrington and others are in a way carrying the torch of surrealism forward where the male artist, somebody like Salvador Dali, feels like almost an unfashionable artist right now and and in the way that the scholarship is obviously 
very much dedicated to some of the women artists of that period because they've been underlooked at. But still, it feels an exciting moment for surrealism. So yeah, yeah. Well, I must say, I do still love Max Ernst, and I do think do. I actually <laughs> think Dali made some great paintings before it went wrong. <laughs> okay, let's turn to the UK now, and the Tate's biggest show of the year, I would say, is at Tate Modern, and it's Hilma Afklimt and Mondrian and Jane. Given that 600,000 people attended the Hilma F. Klint show at the Guggenheim, breaking all records, is Hilma F. Klint now the sort of most popular artist of these two, would you say? It's sort of hard to believe it, isn't it? I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm glad the show did, did so well. I think I would say that still most people in the general public know Mondrian more than they know Hilma F. Klint, although what they might find unless they happen to see this fantastic Biola show that happened uh, in Basel in the summer, they may not know Mondrian beyond the grids. And I think if you took a quick look at Hilmaraf Klimt and Mondrian's grids, you might say, what, what have they got in common? But if you know more about Mondrian's earlier work, the, this connection is going to become a great deal clearer and make a great deal more sense. I mean, they both started as landscape painters. They both started experimenting with abstraction in the 1900s. A little bit like you said about Remedius Forest, though. They were very interested in science. But I think we need to remember that science had gone weird at this point. <laughs> you know, this is when people have discovered X-rays. This is when we're told electrons exist. I still find it amazing that the electron could be found at this period with that sort of equipment you know radioactivity so the world has suddenly gone a bit strange because science is now telling us that the world that we see isn't really what's going on they were fascinated by that they were interested in the forces that you couldn't see with the naked eye I also think interestingly she's tended to be associated very publicly with the fact that she was a medium and was interested in spiritualism and that perhaps hasn't helped her actually I would say but in fact uh, you know Mondrian was interested in spiritualism and theosophy and all that kind oh, of stuff both of yeah. them were in touch with Rudolf Steiner I, I don't think they ever met so my understanding is they didn't ever meet but they were both in touch with Rudolf Steiner who you know in one sense we say he was very interested in self-development through creativity and spirituality and exercise but you know some of the ideas of Rudolf Steiner are sort of quite out there and these two were big fans so I think if you think you know Mondrian you're going to see a very different side of Mondrian if you think you know Hilmarath Klimt I think you'll see some amazing connections between them as you say, it taps into this renewed interest in the occult and a kind of post-religious theosophy and, and kind of contemporary ideas of other forms of, of spiritualism. But I think maybe going back to Ben's original question, I think, of course, Modjan is still the bigger artist. However, Himraf Klimt is having a real moment at the moment. There's a feature film out about her. There's a, a seven-volume catalogue, Raisin Age, that's recently been published, several very popular shows, even NFTs using her images, which have been a bit contentious with her family. Um, so I think the kind of grids works of Mondrian are, are so well known. They're sort of etched into our minds, etched onto walls, etched onto windows. If you look out for them, you can see them everywhere, and his influence is kind of huge. But I think she is the more interesting artist at the moment. Absolutely. Let's just briefly mention a few shows then in the UK. We haven't got time to dwell on them now, but Marina Abramovich is finally happening at the RA. That will include reconstructions of her work, for instance, as well as new things. 
I don't know if the timing is right. My feeling is that Marine has gone off the boil a bit. She was a great artist at one point. I'm not sure her recent work stands up. Then there's Isaac Julian and Sarah Lucas surveys at Tate Britain, both which look great. And then at the Barbican, that's a really strong programme. There's an Alice Neal show, which is coming from the Pompidou. And then a Carrie Mae Weems show, which I think is the first for at least a very long time, if not ever, in London. So that's a great survey there. Last show I'm going to mention is Emily Carmack-Ware, at the National Gallery of Australia in Canberra. That's in December, long way away. But I think it's really significant because this is a survey of a First Nations artist from Australia who amazingly, rather like Alma Thomas, picked up the paintbrush very late in life and made an extraordinary body of work, making a painting a day or so at the end of her life. But importantly, this show is curated by two curators who are First Nations themselves. And I think so much of the language around First Nations art in Australia has been dictated by non-First Nations curators and I think it's really significant that this show is happening now and I I think that will be a great show. Jane, thank you very much for joining. Thank you. And Jose, thank you. Thank you, Ben. You can get full details of shows across the world in our Year Ahead 2023 guide, but here are the dates of the main shows and events we mentioned. As we said, there's no confirmed opening date for the Grand Egyptian Museum. The National Portrait Gallery reopens on the 22nd of June. Factory International in Manchester also opens in June. Yayoi Kusama's You, Me and the Balloons opens there on the 29th of June, as does the Manchester International Festival. The Sharjah Biennial, Thinking Historically in the Present, opens on 7th of February. The Guangzhou Biennial, Soft and Weak Like Water opens on 7th of April. There are obviously too many Picasso shows to list, but to find out more about Celebration Picasso 1973 to 2023, visit celebracionpicasso.es. That's Celebration with the Spanish spelling, so with a C. Vermeer opens at the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam on 10th of February. Manet Duggar opens at the Musée d'Orsay in Paris on the 28th of March, and then at the Metropolitan Museum in New York on the 24th of September. Juan de Pereja, Afro-Hispanic painter, opens at the Met on the 3rd of April. Simone Lee opens at the ICA Boston on the 6th of April and then at the Herschel Museum and Sculpture Garden in Washington, D.C. on the 3rd of November before travelling to the Los Angeles County Museum of Art and the Californian African American Museum in 2024. Barclay Hendricks Portraits at the Frick opens at Frick Madison in New York on the 21st of September. Alma Thomas Composing Colour is at the Smithsonian American Art Museum in D.C. from the 15th of September. The Culture, Hip-Hop, and Contemporary Art in the 21st Century opens at the Baltimore Museum of Art on the 5th of April and the St. Louis Art Museum on the 25th of August. John Quick to See Smith opens at the Whitney Museum, New York on the 19th of April. Remedios Faro Science Fictions is at the Art Institute of Chicago from the 29th of July. Hilma Af Klimt and Piet Mondrian Forms of Life opens at Tate Modern in London on the 20th of April. Marina Abramovich is at the Royal Academy in London from the 23rd of September. Emily Kame Kunware, curated by Kelly Cole and Hetty Perkins, opens at the National Gallery of Australia in Canberra on the 2nd of December. And that's it for this episode. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Annie, Jane and Jose. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now.
The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.